You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. 1 to chapter 5 verse 16. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept part of the money, sorry, he kept back part of the money for himself, but put the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled you with your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not just lied to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. A great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out with him and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. This is the price. Peter said to her, How could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Amen. Well, it's great to be back, uh, preaching in person. I think that's the first time I've preached back in person, and everyone's got their masks off, so I can see your lovely faces, so I'll know if you've fallen asleep. Hopefully that uh, doesn't happen. Uh, There's an outline of my sermon on the website, on the welcome card. Uh, That might be useful for you to follow along. 
if you're here and you don't know who I am, I'm Aaron and I'm one of the pastors here at DPC. Uh, Stu's read a section of the passage that we're looking at today. We're going to look at Acts chapter 4 verse 32 all the way through to Acts chapter 6 verse 7. But I thought we wouldn't read all of it uh, in the Bible reading. But let's pray because we really need God's help as we look at his word. Uh, Father, you know that what we really long for as we come to your word are things that only you can bring us by the power of your spirit uh, to have our uh, deaf ears opened, our blind eyes opened, our hearts warmed uh, with love and affection for you. Uh, We long for these things, Father, so we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would be present and living and active in the preaching of your word this day. Uh, bringing glory to your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I uh, wanted to start this afternoon by speaking about COVID cockroaches and the church. Right? Uh, they're all connected, COVID cockroaches and the church. You might wonder what's the connection between COVID cockroaches and the church. Uh, and it's that no matter how hard you try to get rid of them, they just keep growing and spreading and multiplying. Right, that's what we've experienced with COVID, at least to some degree, isn't it? Like we've tried all sorts of strategies uh, to get rid of COVID. Uh, we've been able to develop things that help us to curb the influence of COVID, uh, to learn to live with COVID, but we actually haven't been able to get rid of the virus. It's just kept growing and multiplying and spreading. Uh, some people perhaps have experienced this with something like cockroaches in your house, I've managed to avoid cockroach infestations in the homes that I've lived in, but we've certainly had a whole lot of ants at different times. But I had a friend in Sydney who had a massive cockroach infestation. Yeah, maybe you've experienced this, like cockroaches kind of popping out of the toaster, out of the walls. You pull back your bed to get in at night. Oh, there's cockroaches. And anyway, it was just, you know, feral. And they had to get the professionals in. No matter what they seemed to try... The cockroaches grew, they multiplied, they spread. And that's what we see in today's passage, really, with the church. The church is coming under attack from all sorts of different angles, from the inside, from the outside. And yet, no matter what's going on, the church continues to grow. It can't be stamped out. No one can get rid of it. It keeps growing and multiplying and spreading. So we're going to look at the church under attack by three different things. And then we're going to work out why is it that the church keeps growing and multiplying uh, even in the midst of these attacks. So take a look first at chapter 5, Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, uh, where we see the church under attack by hypocrisy. Uh, We're introduced in the first two verses there to a couple in the early church, Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, They clearly have some property that belongs to them and they have a conversation with one another. They kind of have a desire to be generous to the church. There's a real culture in the church of selling property and giving the proceeds to the church. But it seems uh, that they're not sure that they want to give all the proceeds of the property to the church. So they say, look, let's give most of it, but keep some of it for ourselves. That's what they decide to do. Well, in verse 3, you'll see that the the, the Spirit somehow must have given Peter, the Apostle Peter, some insight into what's going on. It's not like he was eavesdropping on their conversation. He's got supernatural knowledge of what's going on here. And he says, Ananias, uh, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit 
and have kept for yourself some of the money that you received for the land. It's pretty, pretty scathing, isn't it? Imagine if you're having a pastoral meeting with me. I kind of said, Satan has filled your heart. Like, it's pretty intense, pretty in your face. What's the big deal? What's the sin that Ananias and Sapphira have committed? Well, I think verse 4 explains a bit. It's not quite what we might think. Particularly in verse 4, Peter says, uh, Didn't the property belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have uh, not lied just to human beings, but to God. You see what Peter's saying? He's saying that the property actually did belong to you. Right? We saw a few weeks ago that the church wasn't kind of making it compulsory for people to sell their property. Right? That they were free to do what they wanted with their property. And Peter says, once you sold the property, the proceeds were at whose disposal? They were at your disposal, he says. So why is it that you have lied? You see, the issue here, Ananias and Sapphira were doing something incredibly generous, but they wanted to appear more generous than they actually were. They wanted other people in the church to think more highly of them because of their generosity. They wanted to put on a bit of an extra show, a more impressive show. The issue is hypocrisy, isn't it? That's the issue. Well, a few hours later, versus, uh, well, so, so it's, it's, a, it's a very serious sin, isn't it? It's a deadly sin. Ananias falls to the ground and dies. Verse 6, Peter tells a couple of young men who are no doubt wondering what on earth's going on, bundle Ananias up. Take him outside to bury him. And then in verses 7 and 8, Sapphira comes in a few hours later, hasn't been tipped off by social media, has no idea kind of what's going on. Uh, she comes in and Peter says to her, uh, direct question, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Point blank lie. Yes, said Sapphira. That is the price. How could you conspire, Peter says, uh, <clears throat> sorry, how could you could conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. It's pretty intense, isn't it? Sapphira falls to the ground and is buried with her husband. We don't plan on Instituting that as a practice at DPC, if there's any hypocrisy in your heart, uh, don't, don't fear. Uh, but like why, like why so full on? I think it's because lies and hypocrisy from Christians, particularly from Christian leaders, have been incredibly destructive for the church, haven't they? Historically. Uh, Jesus knew this was going to be the case. If you read through the Gospels, Jesus' most scathing critiques were of religious hypocrites particularly hypocritical religious leaders. Like those, if you read, for example, Matthew chapter 6, uh, those religious leaders who uh, went about their praying and their giving and their fasting, and it really wasn't an act of devotion to God. It wasn't about pleasing God at all. It was just about being impressive to other people. Jesus says, that that's disgusting. It's not in line with how the people of my kingdom should live. 
Right, Peter knows that if this sort of hypocrisy is going to be left to run rampant in the church, it's going to eat away at the very foundation of the church. Well, what's the foundation of the church? The foundation of the church is the gospel, the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. And we know that the people who hear and believe the gospel are people who've given up pretending that they're better than they are. They've given up being hypocrites. They're people who've accepted that they are poor and, and broken and flawed and rebellious and proud. As Jesus said, that they, they, they are among the blessed who are poor in spirit. As the song says, they come before God saying, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Well, it's those kind of people that the church is built around, people who've heard and believed the gospel, not people who are still putting on a show thinking that they're better than they are. So let me ask you, I wonder if there's any area of hypocrisy in your life. Are there certainly areas in my life at times? What is it? Is it that you want people to think that you read more of your Bible than you actually do? That you pray more than you actually do? That you watch or listen to more godly things than you actually do? What is it for you? You're a better mum or dad than you actually are. In which areas of your life are you, are you struggling? You need to just come clean with God today. Now, this is the church under attack by hypocrisy, chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. And then in chapter 5, verses 17 to 42, the church is attacked by persecution. Uh, if you look there in verses 17 and 18... Uh, we see there that the same Jewish leaders that Adam's been speaking about the, the past couple of weeks, they've been in a kind of escalating confrontation with the apostles. Uh, those same Jewish leaders arrest the apostles and put them into jail. Uh, if you look in verses 19 and 20, uh, in the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord comes and rescues the apostles from the jail. I'm not going to make the case for why that could happen. or could, I understand that raises some questions, but that's what happens. And the angel says to the apostles, go into the temple courts the very next day and tell everyone about this new life that you've found in Christ. So that's what the apostles do, right? They go into the temple courts at daybreak, first thing the next morning. And why is it that the leaders arrested the apostles and put them in jail? Well, it's because they were jealous of them. You see back in 17 and 18. Uh, the apostles were having this increased influence and popularity amongst the people. I see here we are, the, the apostles boldly going into the temple courts. It's incredibly bold, isn't it? The tensions are escalating. You remember in Acts chapter 4, uh, they were told, they were given these strict orders, don't tell anyone about the name of Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, they're arrested and they're thrown into jail. And yet here, as soon as they're out of jail, first thing the next morning, they're right back into the power centre of these Jewish leaders. Right back into the temple courts. Incredibly bold. Oh, if you look in verses 21 to 24, you'll see that the, the Jewish leaders, the Sadducees, uh, arrive at the temple courts for their day of ministry. And you can imagine the first thing on the agenda is to get the apostles from the jail so that they can question them and interrogate them, hopefully condemn them. So they send the temple guards off to the jail. They come to the jail. The sentries are on duty. The doors are secure. It looks wonderful. They open the doors. No apostles. 
Right, so that they come back, you can imagine the panic amongst the centuries in particular. They were responsible for guarding the apostles. They're trying to come up with some story. And then in verse 25, you see that someone says, look, there they are, over there in the temple courts, teaching the people about Jesus. And so the Sadducees send, the religious leaders send uh, the temple guards over to gather up the apostles. Uh, you'll notice in verse 26, they don't forcibly arrest them. Look at the text there in verse 26. Why is it that they don't forcibly arrest them? Because, again, they're worried about the crowds, you see. They're worried that the crowds might stone them. The apostles are really popular. And if they seem to be roughing up the apostles, then the crowd might turn into an angry mob. And so they gather them up relatively gently and they take them back. In verse 27, like Jesus, the apostles are forced to answer questions before the whole Sanhedrin. That's the kind of 70 ruling elders of Israel. And if you look there in verse 28, uh, referring to the instructions back in Acts 4, you know, strict orders not to talk about Jesus, the high priest says this, We gave you strict orders... Not to teach in this name. That's the name of Jesus. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. You see, they've said, stop teaching about the name of Jesus. And what are the apostles on? They've filled Jerusalem with the name of Jesus. Continually proclaiming the name of Jesus. And not only that, these religious leaders are really frustrated because they say, you guys keep making out that we're somehow guilty of Jesus' blood. Which is either kind of, I mean, these guys must be the most kind of deluded people in history, right? Because they are guilty of Jesus' blood. Like this is, the, this is the very group of people who unjustly arrested Jesus and tried him in some sort of kangaroo court and then handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. This is the nature of sin, isn't it? It's incredibly self-deceptive. I don't know if they really believe this or not, but they're certainly in denial about what they've done. Why the, the apostles kept teaching about the name of Jesus, even though these leaders are kind of escalating their threats against them? Well, verse 29. Take a look at verse 29. We must obey God rather than human beings. But God has commanded us to proclaim the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Sort of programmatic verse for the, all of Acts. God has commanded them to bear witness to the name of Jesus, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Who are we to obey, God or human beings? And we must proclaim the name of Jesus because of who Jesus is. If you look at verse 30, you'll see there that despite the Jewish leaders killing Jesus, God raised him from the dead. Right, Jesus is God's risen king. That's why they must proclaim his name. And not only that, verse 31, God exalted Jesus as both prince and saviour. And why did he do that? Look at the second half of verse 31. Why did God raise Jesus and exalt Jesus? Well, the apostles say it was so that you guys might repent and receive forgiveness through trusting in Jesus. Repent just means to change your mind. The apostles are saying that the whole point of God raising and exalting Jesus was so that you guys might change your mind about him. And that instead of rejecting him and killing him, you might trust him and worship him. 
So how, like, we're in a bit of a bind here, the Apostle's saying. God sent us to proclaim Jesus to you for your good. We're not going to stop. Well, you can imagine the leaders are kind of wondering, well, kind of, how do you know that Jesus is risen and exalted? So they, they say, look in verse 32. They say, well, first we know because we are witnesses of this stuff. We've seen it with our own eyes. You know, where we saw Jesus raised from the dead. He appeared to us. We ate meals with him. He taught us. If you read back in Acts chapter 1, he taught us for 40 days. Opened the Bible with us and had a little missionary training school. Oh, well, we're witnesses of Jesus' resurrection. And then we saw Jesus exalted. He returned to his father in heaven. We saw that in Acts chapter 1 too. We are witnesses of this stuff, they say. But it's not just us, it's the Holy Spirit too. You see there in verse 32, the Holy Spirit testifies to the truth of these things. Because every time someone, as Ken's kid spot says, calls on the name of the Lord to be saved, what happens? They receive the Holy Spirit. This is the sign that Jesus really is God's risen and exalted king. Or you can imagine the Jewish leaders are just really getting riled up. They've given them strict orders not to teach about Jesus. They've put them in jail. And that here they are, not only teaching the people, but presuming to lecture them about who Jesus is. So look in verse 33. They want to kill the apostles. They're filled with rage. And it's only because a guy named Gamaliel, verses 34 to 39, he stands up and makes a speech. Maybe a bit, of a, a bit of a peacemaker in a sense. Gamaliel, a respected leader amongst the Sanhedrin. Uh, and he basically says, slow down, think carefully. And he points them to two examples in the first century. He says, we've had these so-called messiahs before. Thutis, for example, he went around claiming to be a messiah, gathered a great following. But then the Romans killed him and all his disciples scattered. Same thing happened with Judas. So presuming that Jesus is just another kind of so-called Messiah, not the real deal, then let's not get worked up about it. He's just of human origin. On the other hand, if he's been sent by God, what's the point in fighting against God? Right? Who's going to win that battle? So in verse 40, the Sanhedrin think there's some sense to that. They decide that they won't kill the apostles, but instead they'll just flog them publicly flogging the apostles. Right, this is the church under attack by persecution, really for the first time in history. But notice how the, the apostles respond. Do you see how they respond there in, in verse 41? They go home not really licking their wounds, but rejoicing. Rejoicing because they had been considered, wor considered worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Right, rejoicing but because this sharing in Jesus' sufferings was a sign to them that they were, really were united with Jesus by faith. They had this deep spiritual connection with Jesus so that what happened to Jesus was happening to them. Jesus was treated with disgrace because, simply because he was faithful to the mission that his father called him to. Now, his apostles are being treated with disgrace, not because they're being jerks or disgraceful people, but because they're being faithful to the mission that Jesus has called them to. So they're rejoicing in their suffering. 
The words of Jesus in Matthew 5 must have been kind of ringing in their ears. Remember, Jesus said, Blessed are you whenever people insult you or persecute you or falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. I think that's what the apostles were thinking about. We've been persecuted for the name of Jesus, insulted for the name of Jesus. We rejoice and be glad for great is our reward in heaven. So day after day, verse 42, they're just in the business of proclaiming the name of Jesus. They do it in public, in the temple courts. They do it in private, from house to house, proclaiming the wonderful news that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is God's promised king who's come to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The wonderful joy and peace and, and bliss of God's reign. So what do we do with all of this, the church under attack? Uh, Well, first, I think we do have to be clear on what persecution is and isn't. Adam touched on this last week, didn't he, if you heard his sermon. Uh, Some people say, look, the church is being persecuted in Australia uh, because we haven't experienced all the freedoms that we might like to worship God whenever and however we might want. Uh, And I want to suggest, as Adam said last week, that that's not really persecution. Persecution is what's going on in this chapter, where the church is forbidden from worshipping at all where the church is forbidden from proclaiming the name of Jesus at all, where the church suffers uh, socially, economically, physically, losing their lives even, simply because they want to live faithfully as Christians. Sure, in Melbourne we've been restricted in some way, but as Adam said last week, it was a good line, wasn't it? We've been restricted not because we are Christians, but because we're Melburnians, restricted like anyone else living in our city. We've got to be clear on what persecution is and isn't. So we're not being persecuted in Australia yet, but I think we need to be prepared for that. So two ways that we might prepare for this sort of persecution. The first is reminding ourselves, reminding one another of the reality of the Christian life. I think in a kind of largely, uh, I know, like increasingly secular, but there's a, we're kind of a Christianised country in a way. So living as a Christian in Australia has historically been really quite comfortable. So I think we've forgotten uh, that um, persecution is the norm of the Christian life. Persecution is kind of Christianity 101. Like Peter, uh, Paul says uh, in 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, uh, 2 Timothy 3 verse 12, uh, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think we have to remember this, that being treated with disgrace for the name of Jesus is normal. That's par for the course as a Christian. If you want to be united with the one who was hated, you'll probably be hated. He was rejected, you'll be rejected. He was persecuted, you'll be persecuted. We should accept that this is the reality of the Christian life. A second, uh, well, sorry, I should say, that's not a big, that's not a great, I mean, that's how Jesus sells. That's Jesus' kind of main evangelistic strategy, isn't it? Like, if you, if you want to follow me, you have to die, right? Take up your cross and follow me. It's not overly appealing, uh, not kind of speaking to people's kind of felt needs uh, very much. Uh, but that's his strategy. Uh, and, but you might think, well, I don't, want, I don't know if I want to sign up to follow Jesus. In which case, we don't have to just remember the reality of the Christian life, but the rewards of the Christian life. 
Uh, in Mark 10, verse 28, uh, Peter said to Jesus, but Jesus, we've left everything to follow you. So he's saying, where's our prize? What's in it for us? Where's our reward? And Jesus says to his disciples, uh, truly I tell you, no one who's left home or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or fields for me and for the sake of the gospel will fail to receive 100 times as much in this present age and in the age to come eternal life. Right? As we remind one another of the rewards of the Christian life, uh, we'll remember that yes, there's persecution, yes, there's suffering, yes, there's hardship, but all of that pales into insignificance compared with the wonderful rewards that we have in following Jesus. Not just in this life, but in the next one. Jesus says how much? You'll receive 100 times as much. Now, some of you have heard me say this before, right? But if I had a $100 note, I said, hey, you, you can come and have this $100 note. That's your reward. You just have to pay me $1. That's a pretty good deal. Right? That's a cost. I'm not denying it's a cost. A $1 is a cost. But it's nothing in comparison to the $100 you get back. That's what Jesus is saying. Yes, there's a cost, but the rewards are abundant for following Jesus. You're not going to miss out. Uh, David Livingston, the, the first missionary who took the gospel to Africa, said this. He said, people talk about all the sacrifices I have made uh, in spending much of my life in Africa for the sake of the gospel. Uh, he says, is it really a sacrifice uh, if it brings its own blessed reward? Away with this word sacrifice, say rather it is a privilege. I never made a sacrifice. Well, that's what the apostles were thinking, wasn't it? It's a privilege. They were considered to be worthy for suffering disgrace for the name of Jesus. And this is what we have to remember as we prepare for potential persecution, remembering the reality of the Christian life and the rewards of the Christian life. Two attacks, first by hypocrisy, then by persecution, and at the start of chapter 6, an attack by division. Take a look in chapter 6, verse 1. In those days where the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among the people complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the church is growing, it's multiplying, it's flourishing, but there's this threat of division in the church. Hellenistic Jews, that's the Jewish Christians who'd embraced uh, Greek language and culture, uh, they were complaining against the Hebraic Jews. That's the, the Jewish Christians who wanted to maintain some of their Hebrew distinctives, Hebrew language, Hebrew culture. Uh, and the Hellenistic Jews are saying, wait a second, our widows are being overlooked when the food's taken round. Now, you remember from, from Acts chapter 2, this is a really big deal, this kind of division, this disunity in the church. Because the coming of the Spirit, what's it supposed to do? Well, remember, people speaking in tongues and the people from every nation are hearing the, the gospel in their own language. The church is supposed to bring people together from different languages, bring people together from different cultures. And yet here, just a few chapters later, we see divisions forming along the lines of language and culture. This is a threat to the church, an attack on the church. And it's happening because certain people feel that they're being overlooked or they actually are being overlooked. And this can easily happen today, can't it? We can easily feel that we are, or maybe we are, being overlooked in the life of our church. The community is caring for and considerate of other people's needs, 
but not my needs, not our needs. Perhaps I feel overlooked because I don't have kids or I'm not married yet or I've never read a book by Tim Keller or, you know, I never spent time in the Christian Union. I live outside the city of Darabin. I feel overlooked. I live north of Bell Street. I don't actually like coffee that much. You know, like we, we can feel overlooked, can't we? And of course, sometimes we have to own as a church, we've got blind spots. I'm not saying we do a brilliant job of caring for anyone and everyone. We've got to keep working hard on being a really inclusive community that cares for each individual in our church. But even if we are actually being overlooked, it's not an excuse to to resort to ungodly complaints that would cause division, is it? To assume the worst about our brothers and sisters, to grow cynical and bitter, That can cause division in our church that's really destructive for our growth. So that's a church under attack by hypocrisy, persecution and division. And yet in the midst of all that, they just keep growing and multiplying. You see that theme throughout in chapter 5, verses 12 to 16. Stu read these verses out. It's a wonderful picture of the church flourishing right in the middle of persecution, of attack, of suffering. People are being spiritually restored to God through faith in Jesus, more and more people each day. And people are being physically restored as the exalted Lord Jesus acts in power, miraculous power, through his apostles, healing people, casting out demons. It's incredible. A wonderful picture of the church flourishing even when it's under attack. We saw in in chapter 6, verse 1, that the church increasing in number. In chapter 6, verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests even became obedient to the faith. Well, what is it that enables the church to continue growing and multiplying, even in the midst of everything that's going on? Well, let me say three things that it's not. It's not because they avoided everyone. Sometimes that's a tendency. You're under attack and you think the only way we're going to survive, if not grow here, is if we bunker down in a holy huddle and try to avoid everyone. That's not the church, is it? They're out in the temple courts every day talking to people about Jesus. They didn't avoid everyone. Uh, On the other hand, they didn't go on the attack themselves. Sometimes people think that. You've got to fight back. These guys were boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus, unashamedly calling people to repent and believe in Jesus, but they never resorted to personally insulting people, to mocking people. No. Didn't avoid people. They didn't kind of outright attack people. And they didn't assimilate with people. Some people say that today. Look, if you want to grow as a church today, the way to do it is to stay relevant. And if you want to stay relevant, you've got to become more like the world around you. You've essentially got to assimilate. Then people will be more accepting of you. That's a bad idea for two reasons. First, because it usually involves rejecting teachings about Jesus. That's not a good thing to do. Uh, Secondly, it's a bad idea because it just doesn't work. You can do a survey, but there are virtually no churches in Australia that have embraced this strategy that are growing. Like Almost all of them are shrinking. And I think part of the reason they're shrinking is because people might go along to the church and they say, man, you look just like me. It seems like Jesus doesn't make any difference. 
You see? Like, well, what have you got to offer me? Oh, you want me to go to a building on Sunday afternoons for two hours to be a nicer person? Hey, I can be a nice person at the pub. Assimilation's not the answer. These guys were attractive. That's what they were. They were a beautiful and compelling and distinctive community that people were drawn to. And the reason they were so attractive, I think, is at the start and the end of the passage, uh, where the community that's filled with the Spirit keeps sharing in word and deed with boldness. That's what's so attractive about them. In chapter 4, verse 31, Adam finished last week. Wonderful prayer meeting, this kind of filling of the Spirit. And what do they do? Acts 4, verse 31, they speak the word of God with boldness. And then in Acts 4, verse 33, we see the same thing. Filled with the power of the Spirit, the apostles continue to testify about the resurrection of Jesus. And then at the end of the passage, in chapter 6, verse 2, the Spirit-filled apostles say... It wouldn't be right for us to neglect what? The ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. In chapter 6, verse 4, we will give our attention to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You see, the church in Jerusalem continued to grow and flourish even when it was under attack because empowered by God's spirit, they kept sharing the word of God with boldness. We saw that all through chapter 5, the boldness of the apostles. That's what this spirit-filled church looks like, one that is sharing the word in boldness. But not just the word in boldness, they shared indeed with boldness. If you look at the end of chapter 4, verses 32 to 37, you'll see that on the back of being filled with the spirit, they didn't just speak the word boldly, they also gave generously with boldness, selling their property. Uh, to give to anyone in the community who might be in need. It's radical and bold generosity. Uh, And you see the same thing at the end of the the passage, don't you? Uh, Where the church's radical commitment to meeting the needs of everyone in the community is seen in them appointing the, the first deacons, seven servants. Servants, note, that are filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that makes them generous and bold in doing good. See, the the early church continued to grow even when it was under attack because empowered by God's spirit, they kept sharing in word and deed with boldness. How how is it that God's spirit produces this kind of boldness amongst God's people? What does the spirit actually do? I want to say it's because of the the role of the spirit that that we hear in other parts of the Bible. You can read in Romans chapter 5, for example, or Romans chapter 8 where the spirit is spoken of as the spirit of sonship, the spirit that that assures us of our heavenly father's love for us, that enables us to cry out to God as our heavenly father, Abba, Father. How does that produce boldness in a church? Well, it produces boldness because if you're secure in your heavenly father's love for you, knowing that you are his child and you've got a a glorious inheritance to look forward to that is much more spectacular than any wealth or possessions or money that you can accumulate in this life, what does that do for you? It means you don't have to cling to any of your earthly possessions. You can give them boldly and radically and generously to anyone who's in need. That's what the Spirit does. You're secure in your heavenly Father's love and so you don't get security from stuff anymore. You can give it away. That's what's happening in the church. Likewise, when they're sharing with word in boldness, if you're secure in your heavenly father's love for you, 
knowing his approval, his acceptance, his delight in you, then what do you care about the disgrace with which other people treat you? The suffering, the rejection. It's not that you don't care at all, but you're like the apostles. I know the love of the God of the universe. That's why I consider it a privilege to suffer for the name of Christ. You'll gladly give your life away, give the gospel away, even in the face of suffering. Because you're secure in your Father's love for you, because you're filled with the Spirit. Now, I don't think our our church currently is under attack uh, in the way that the church here in, in the book of Acts is. So there's a sense in which this isn't immediately relevant for us. But if we do come under attack, more serious attack like this, I hope this passage assures you uh, that we can continue growing and bearing fruit and multiplying as a church. If empowered by God's spirit, we keep sharing in word and deed with boldness. Let me pray and then we're going to sing. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, We do pray that uh, your spirit would do a great work in our hearts, even in this moment are reminding us of your great love for us in Christ your Son, uh, that we are secure in your love uh, and that nothing indeed can separate us from your love. And as we uh, delight in that security as your children, uh, we pray, Father, that we would uh, boldly uh, share indeed, giving generously to all those who are in need and that we would boldly share in word sharing the wonderful news of our Lord Jesus uh, with all those who need to hear it. In his name we pray.